The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. CPI, ISM, wages, jobless claims. All these different data points are giving you very different stories about the economy right now. So are we growing or slowing? We'll break it down and debate whether it's safe to invest in these markets. Speaking of which, the meme stocks are back. Oh, boy. Is it a red flag or a green light for equities more broadly? And on the heels of the proxy fight over at Disney, we have a very special edition of Three Buys and a Bail that you absolutely do not want to miss. Very much looking forward to that. But first, let's get to today's markets with Dominic Chu. Where are you, Dom? We are at session highs right now, Kelly, believe it or not. So the S&P 500 is currently down about two to three points. We were down 36 at one point today. The Dow Industrial is now just about flat up 22 points and the Nasdaq up seven. And big bank earnings are a big part of that story. The reason why I'm going to show you this, four big names reported today. It was Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citi. If you take a look at those names, the reason why it's important is each one of those is in the green right now. Why? Because at one point, Wells Fargo was down 5% intraday and now is actually in positive territory, up by nearly 2%. All of these stocks right now have moved towards their highs of the session and are green. They were, again, markedly red later on, earlier on this morning. Now, take a look at some of these commentaries coming out of the CFOs. Remember, the economic outlook is so key to many of these discussions. Check out Jane Frazier at Citi, who says we continue to see the U.S. entering a mild recession in the second half of the year. That's Citi's outlook. Wells Fargo's chief financial officer, Mike Santomassimo, we're planning for it to get worse than it's been over the last few quarters, and I think we're preparing for a whole range of different scenarios. Then you've got Brian Moynihan at Bank of America saying our baseline scenario contemplates a mild recession, and Jamie Dimon over at J.P. Morgan, maybe a mild recession, maybe not. I'm simply pointing out that there are these geopolitical uncertainties which are real, and we've just had our eyes focused on them, and we hope they go away. They may not. The bottom line, Kelly, all of these big bank CEOs have a more conservative outlook about the economy in the coming months. I'll send things Dom, back over Dom, wait to you. a minute. You, let's, let's look behind you for one more second. You have three of them all using the exact same term, mild recession. Mild recession, I don't, I don't yes. like that. It, 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 it's almost consensus at this point, which makes you Whew. wonder whether or not there could be a counter trend issue that develops in the next moment. It makes me think we're either going to grow 5% or collapse to something much (laughs) deeper. Uh, That's a great thing to highlight, though, Dom. Thank you. We appreciate it, Dom Chu. This is exactly the point we're trying to make right now. There's so much macro confusion. It's worth reviewing what we've learned this week. Which way does the data point to an economy that's growing or an economy that's slowing? In the growing camp, you have jobless claims at 205,000, payrolls expanding by 223,000, wages still rising at 4.6% year over year. Sounds pretty good, right? See, jobless claims still low. This is a pretty good sign. Story doesn't end there, though, as we all know. In the slowing camp, CPI posted another monthly drop, the biggest since April 2020. Year-on-year headline and core readings, they've consistently dropped each of them by about over a percentage point, as you can see here. Yeah, that's the slowing momentum we're talking about. Then it gets worse. Manufacturing ISM collapsing. Services ISM contracting as well. And both numbers are leading indicators. And back to wages. They're one of the most lagging indicators we have. That 4.6% growth I mentioned is already a slowing. And the recent monthly figures show further deceleration ahead. 
So where does my next guest fall? I think I know. <laughs> Joining me now is Ian Shepardson. He's the chief economist at Pantheon. CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leesman is here as well. Welcome to you guys both. Ian, I'll start with you. I'll call you in the dovish camp. You're worried about growth. So uh, tell us where you stand right now. I'm worried about it, but I'm not panicked about it. I, I kind of think that... Um you know, getting a recession, uh, the dreaded mild recession, is is not a crazy idea. I think that getting a really bad, severe disaster recession is much less likely. And I think there's a, a, a reasonable chance of avoiding both of them. I mean, I think, you know, if we get to the middle of the year or even the end of the year and we're looking back and saying, hey, the economy managed to bumble along without falling into any sort of recession at all, that wouldn't massively surprise me. I think what would surprise me would be either the disaster scenario or the 5% growth scenario. Those, I think, are really uh, pretty unlikely. I mean, the private sector's finances are under stress from the Fed, uh, but they start off in reasonable shape. So if you think that a, you know, a recession or a cyclical downturn is proportional to how aggressive the Fed's been and the state of the private sector's finances, well, the Fed's been very aggressive, right. but the private sector's finances are okay. So bumbling through seems a, a, you know, a reasonable start. Point, I guess but, the, you know, it could tip either way. This is so the first thing to mention. I don't really, you know, to me, it's not so much about does it happen in the calendar year. It's just how big is this looming thing going to be? How big is the iceberg? Right. And, and it's interesting to me. And that's why I wanted to highlight it, that we have bank uh, CEOs talking about as if it's a given a mild recession. That's not necessarily consistent with what the yield curves are telling us. I mean, that, that's a, they're telling us a major iceberg is coming. Yeah. They are. They are. You know, the, the, and this is a real problem for forecasters now and for investors because we've got a bunch of very mixed signals. I and mean, if you look at housing, total disaster area. You look at those ISM surveys, they're really alarming. The NFIB small business survey tells a similar story, really pretty grim. But then if you look at consumption in the fourth quarter, you know, it's going to be 3% plus probably. Consumer confidence numbers today up quite strongly. Big jump in people's view of the current economy. People getting a lot less worried about inflation. And the consumer is nearly 70% of the economy. Our capital spending and are weak, but they're not terrible, and they look like they've bottomed out. So there's a real big bunch of conflicting indicators, and I think it's really important for everyone to keep their keep their mind open as to where we could go. You know, this has been a very unusual economy now for almost three years. You know, uh, since COVID struck, all the old rules are out the window. All the things that used to be reliable indicators now sometimes are, sometimes aren't. We just don't know. Sure. And it's easy to be blindsided. We've been blindsided by by inflation for sure. Maybe this year we we get blindsided by growth. It's mm. it's really difficult. And Steve, the worst data point we got today, five to 10 year inflation expectations up to 3% for the consumer. This is yeah. after the ju- the gaslight. But here's the point. You I'm and I know freaked out the, by that one. the Fed's obsessed. They're obsessed, They're obsessed with inflation. With They're going to look at that and go, yeah, we can't back off now. Inflation's just becoming entrenched. Think, go, we don't care about the yield curve. I think their story has been that inflation expectations are relatively under control. And I think they're going to stick with it with a, a, a small increase on the right. five and 10, at least for now. But I think Ian's on to what, I don't know, I would make more of it than you do, Ian, uh, from, a, from the Federal Reserve standpoint. The big story has been 400 basis points of tightening and an economy that is strengthening as we end the year. Um, I think when it comes to the Federal Reserve, I think they're looking at that. We had Bullard talk about it yesterday. Now, the kind way that they process this is they say, hey, this is great. We can fight inflation, raise rates, and not hurt a lot of people. On the other hand, if they, under their formula that they see the economy, they have to bring growth down below potential to create slack in the economy. And by the way, there's reason to think potential might be a little bit lower than it otherwise was before. 
Um, and so that would mean from their standpoint, they have more work to do. So this good news on the economy, the spending numbers that we have, the employment numbers we have, I think are key, I think is bad news for a Federal Reserve that's trying to fight inflation. Go, oh, he, he's, oh, just, he's just like, yeah, I agree. Ian, sorry, your, I think your a, delay's you know, throwing me off. Go ahead. What were yeah. you going to say? Yeah, sorry. So, so, so of those rate hikes that they did last year, 275 basis points came in the second half of the year. And I, I think it's very likely that hardly any of that has filtered through into the economy already. And yet inflation is rolling over right now. So by the time those other those 275 basis points work through, that's going to be putting downward pressure on an economy which has already moved into the disinflationary phase. And it's certainly true, you know, payroll growth is still pretty strong. But I think part of that is just the tail end of the post-COVID catch-up hiring that began back in the summer of 21. Uh, and that's really fading away now. And as it disappears, we'll be left only with the cyclical component. And that cyclical component is going to come under pressure from the, the lagged effect of the rate hikes. And some people at the Fed are talking about this, the, the, the lags and the cumulative tightening they've done so far. And so the question is clearly being asked about whether maybe they've done enough or nearly enough. I mean, I totally agree they're going to hike again on, on February 1. But I do think when they sit down in March, if we've had another couple of CPI reports, which are pretty good, and we've seen payroll growth softening and wage growth continues to soften as well, I think markets are going to be saying to the Fed, hey, do you really need to keep going at all any further? You know, the skepticism among investors, I think, is really building now as to whether the Fed's ever going to get to this 5% plus that they're talking about. And I have certainly, a chart for that. if they do, how long they're going to stay there. Yeah. You, you say it, Ian, <laughs> and I have, a, I have a chart for that. What we're going to look at next, folks, is what's happened between the Fed and the market and the gap since June. And what we see here is there was a big gap in June where the Fed was placed for its year-end 2023 numbers. It was as high as over a full percentage point. Then the market started rising with Fed rhetoric and the data, and they were all in agreement on that next move up to a year-end 23 rate of 4.6%. Then we get to the December hike and you zoom in there and what you see is the Fed went up to five and change and the market was like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the center with a driving guard. They rejected it. They absolutely slapped it down and said no. And you can see now as we yeah. zoom in on the June chart here, what are you looking at? You're looking at the Fed going up to that 5% year-end rate and the market saying no. And then it said no some more on the jobs report and it said no some more on the CPI but to report. your point, when we show the longer one, the, the market caught up with the Fed last year. Or the Fed caught up with the market. One or the other, they were. But I think what we're looking at here, uh, 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 Kelly, is this idea that the Fed has limitations for how far it can go if it doesn't bring the market along. And the market is just not buying what the Fed is selling. I, I think it's more what you said yesterday, which is that maybe they do buy it and they're just going, oh, my gosh, the iceberg is coming. They're going, you're steering the Titanic into the iceberg. We're telling you it's coming. You're not listening. Well, we understand the, the implications your own actions of what you're better saying, than you do. And I'm sure Ian would come. The implications of what you're saying is the harder the Fed pushes, the more they're going to lower Lower rates. rates. Yes, Ian. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the thing you've got to remember from the Fed's perspective here, they got it really wrong last year. So there's a, a really strong imperative not to get it wrong in the same direction twice. I mean, that'd be horrendously damaging. So they have to talk the very aggressive talk. They've got, to, they've got to prevent the markets from loosening financial conditions prematurely. And they've got to sound tough because they've got to have, the, the, they need the public to believe in them and to come along with them. But they can only do this for as long as the data allow them to do it. I mean, it, it's, it, it's easy to cry wolf when the wolf is visible. But when the wolf 
has turned around and slunk back into the forest and everyone's looking at falling inflation and slowing wage growth, the market's just going to say, you know, why are you telling us that you're terrified of this wage price spiral? It isn't happening. It's and I think news. we've moved decisively in that direction over the last few weeks. All right. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thanks. thanks. We really appreciate it. Ian Shepardson and our own Steve Leisman. Now to a market bellwether that's back from the dead. You guessed it. The meme stocks not just up, but surging this week. AMC up more than 30 percent. GameStop up 26 percent. And what bankruptcy uh, warning, I was going to say filing, Bed Bath & Beyond up a whopping 242%. So does it mean the broader market is soon to follow? Let's ask Bill Stone. He's the chief investment officer at the Glenview Trust Company. Bill, what's your gut reaction to the revival of the meme stocks? I, I got to be honest, it doesn't make me feel good because I actually think the opposite is you have to get worried that there's you know too many animal spirits uh, back too early. Um, you know, I, I came into the year, I'd say, pretty optimistic that we, you know, at least by the end of the year would be feeling a lot better. Um, but, you know, you just don't want people, I'll just argue, you just don't want to chase companies that the fundamentals are just, you know, nowhere near where I'd argue you want to go. Sure. I, and I would add at the margin. I mean, if I'm a Fed official and I look at this, I go, well, we better tighten a little bit further because this isn't, yeah, it, it, we don't want these liquidity conditions. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like when the SPACs were going crazy, right? Like, you know, if you can just put that out there and issue those willy-nilly, yeah, you have to worry that, that, like I said, I say the animal spirits, but however you want to put it, yeah, you're right of that. We talk about the Fed worrying about financial conditions loosening too much. Um, this, yeah, they might look at this as a sign. So let's talk about what you do in a year in which, I'll just keep the analogy going, the economy may be headed towards an iceberg. <laughs> Do you just uh, party while the music's still playing? And, you know, when I hear people say industrials and cyclicals, I, to tech I totally understand what they're saying. And it might work for the entire year. I, I, who knows exactly when the timing of this is going to hit? What do you do in the no, meantime? You're right. I mean, because the harp right now is, you know, you, you, you talked about it earlier with every single CFO from a bank and pretty much everybody's in agreement now um, that there's likely to be a recession, you know, sometime this year. And, you know, I think most of us are piled in on the second half. Um, so has the market already discounted it last year? Now, typically you don't get a market bottom before the recession actually starts, but Hey, typical versus what ends up happening. You never know. Right. Um, I, you know, I think my, my thing is you, you stick with your game plan of, you know, the market almost always moves in advance of better economic data. So just focusing on economic data isn't going to really help you time the market. Um, so I still say, though, you got to be careful, be invested in areas where they can survive through the recession, because if you don't survive through it, you can't possibly benefit after. So um, sure. I think that's the way to play it. You, a couple of examples, and I, it sounds like you're also looking for companies where the, the bar might be very low. So, for instance, Amazon, Anheuser-Busch, is that right? Yeah, and I think, you know, Amazon's a great one because let's say we don't ever go into recession. I mean, I think you've got a pretty quick upside in that thing um, because, you know, Amazon – no doubt about it. The earnings would get hurt uh, in a recession. But again, I'm not worried about them going out of business. In fact, I argue they'll they would emerge from recession probably stronger because, you know, maybe one of those stocks you talked about as a meme stock won't be around anymore. Um, and let's just say other competitors won't be around. Uh, so I think that is super interesting. Um, you know, the other one, uh, Anheuser-Busch is, is a different story, but, you know, another one well off of its pre-pandemic highs. Great brands, again, don't have to worry about it in a recession because, frankly, alcohol consumption does not fall during recessions. 
people trade down a bit, so it would hurt their earnings somewhat, but again, not worried about it. Um, if you don't get a recession, you probably continue to have people buy premium right. uh, beers, and that helps them pay down their debt quicker, which then allows them to more quickly return cash flow to shareholders. So a final comment, what are your thoughts on kind of the the bank earnings? I mean, the fact, like Dom mentioned, that we've seen Wells go from minus five to plus two on the session today, and a little bit of the market whiplash tells me people are are somewhat confused. Um, what, what would your takeaway be as we look to kick things off here at, with what they've just told us? Yeah, I think my takeaway was the actual earnings themselves for the quarter were, I'd say, quite good. You know, their core banking earnings continue to be very good in a lot of cases, growing uh, loans. Also, you know, the loan, uh, the net interest margin was good. So I, I think a lot of that, that was good. I, w- I thought, frankly, this morning when they were all down, it was just really a response to, all those comments you put on the screen, which is, hey, they all think there's a recession next year, so you probably have to worry about their earnings. So it was kind of a look forward. Um, yeah. I, I still think that. I, I think that's the, the tug of war we're going to be dealing with. Absolutely. Bill, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks so much today. Thank you. Bill Stone. Coming up, you don't feel bad if you had an awful 22 because the almighty hedge funds did too. There were two winning strategies, though. We'll reveal them ahead. Plus, Nelson Peltz making a move on Disney. That's got us thinking. Is shareholder activism one catalyst for the stocks or would it be a caveat for performance? It's a very special edition of Three Buys and a Bail with a very special guest. One of his picks, by the way, up 28% in the past six months. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets, which are back in negative territory. The Dow down 15, the Nasdaq down three, the Russell's hanging on to a four-point gain, the 10-year still under three and a half. The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Hedge funds not escaping the awful year we just had in markets, but a select few like Rocos Capital and Renaissance's Medallion Fund outperformed with returns of 51 and 19 percent, respectively. And my next guest says they did it by focusing on two key strategies. Joining us now is Greg Zuckerman, special writer at The Wall Street Journal. Great to see you again, Greg. Welcome. Great seeing you again. So first of all, let's set the scene here. For the most part, hedge funds had as bad a year as the rest of us. Yeah, it wasn't anything to get too excited about. It wasn't as bad as some some recent years. Uh, hedge funds overall were down about four and a quarter percent, you know, relative to the 60-40 index, which I like to compare it to. That was good, but you don't want to get too excited. On an asset-weighted basis, though, in other words, um, where you acknowledge the bigger funds having done as well as they did, as some of them did do quite well, the industry was actually up 1%. So it's wow. not an awful year. Wow. So so the the biggest did better than everybody else, kind of like the S&P by, by market cap, but actually did okay? 
Yeah, so the big guys have in the last few years actually excelled. They are attracting better talent. They're better at risk management. They're often non-directional, and that obviously helps when the market and both stocks and bonds go down as much as they did. But when you look at some of the uh, the bigger players, D.E. Shaw, Citadel, Renaissance, um, the Medallion Fund is um, some breaking some news here for you right here. Those are good funds that have done kind of quasi-quant or they are quant. And that's one of the that's one of the strategies that have done quite well over the past year. How did we go from writing quant's obituary to it crushing everybody else here? Well, I don't want to go overboard. All quants haven't done especially well the past year. But in general, um, if you are not directional, you've done pretty well. And if you look at some of the real embarrassments over the past year, you look at Tiger, for example, down 50 percent. They were kind of leveraged long and especially on technology tech and, on, yeah. and on privates, especially. And in some ways, that whole strategy has been discredited. Um, we did a really good story a few months back, my colleagues, about Tiger and about and if you dig into the story, how much they farm out. They paid Bain Capital, Bain a uh, hundred million dollars to do their due diligence wow. um, on some of their privates. So that whole strategy has really come under fire and in question right now. And the other guys, the ones who do risk management and have these big pods where they have people doing stat or other kinds of um, multi-strat kind of um, approaches, they've done much better. So, and just to be clear, so uh, statistical uh, arbitration funds, for instance, when, you, when we talk about quant and we say non-directional, you know, for people sitting at home, other than qualifying to put their money in some of these, what are the lessons to be learned that, that, that you basically have to have leading edge, you know, artificial intelligence, technology algorithms, you name it, to just kind of outsmart and outpace the markets? Or is there something, what, what more do we know about how they're able to turn it, to generate this alpha? Yeah, so the lesson here, it's really hard to beat the market. And frankly, it's gotten harder during the course of my career, the course of people's careers on Wall Street. There's very little alpha, outperformance, getting information, that whole information advantage that hedge funds used to rely on. That's gone by the wayside. And instead, it's people taking a long and a short position on maybe two stocks within the same industry. I'm really simplifying it. But that's a way to make a bet without um, worrying and relying on the overall market going higher. So there are aberrations that do arise in the market. And frankly, it's because people like you and me, or at least me, uh, the fear and the greed of the individual investor. And the more we talk about these these meme stocks and people taking, uh, um, getting into stocks that are going to go bankrupt, let's say, or potentially going to go bankrupt, like Bed Bath and Beyond, the the strategies that can take advantage often uh -oh, often yes. are the quantity ones. Yeah. So it, in fact, the very sort of um, non-efficient crowdsourced move in the meme stocks is generating alpha for the hedge funds that profit on on these kinds of arbitrage strategies. Yeah, exactly. And frankly, that's where the talent's going. Um, they have these things called pods where they have groups of people and the people running these firms, in other words, Millennium, for example, and um, Two Sigma, some, some others, they can allocate capital where it's most appropriate and they can also do risk management. And frankly, they just have a much, uh, they have a big advantage over the kind of smaller funds and we're seeing the performance uh, reflected accordingly. So message to the Reddit forums. <laughs> If you don't want to feed the outperformance of hedge funds, maybe don't don't create opportunities that they can exploit. Listen, I don't want to uh, cause any backlash uh, on, on Twitter and getting emails. But, yeah, in general, 
um, the millenniums and the uh, renaissances love volatility in the market and they love people getting in individual investors. And frankly, historically speaking, they don't do quite as well as I don't want to say that the hedge funds, but yeah. some pros. So we are susceptible to the feed and the, the greer, the greed, I'm sorry, uh, greed and fear, and they can often take advantage. Fascinating. Greg, you know it all. Thanks for joining us. Great to see you again. Great seeing you. Happy New Year. Greg Zuckerman with The Wall Street Journal. Coming up, Tesla down another 2.5% today, and that's way off the lows. All of this on the back of more steep price cuts here and abroad. Are they getting desperate, or is this the right way to elbow competitors out of the market? We'll have the latest. Plus, is streaming getting too expensive? Is the gig up for the gig economy? And is ChatGPT overhyped? Today's tech rundown is ahead. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map. As mentioned, we flip back into negative territory just by about 34 points right now. Only about seven stocks are in the green. J.P. Morgan and Goldman are actually leading the way today, while Disney is the worst performer once again. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hello, everyone. I'm Tyler Matheson, and this is your CNBC News update. Here's what's happening at this hour. In Virginia, school administrators say a first grader's backpack was searched before he shot his teacher last Friday, but the weapon was not found. School officials were notified the six-year-old might be armed, and that's what triggered the search. The teacher was shot in the chest. The injury considered to be life-threatening, but she is recovering her condition now stable. In Indiana, the man charged with the murder of two teenage girls in 2017 has lost an attempt to move the site of his trial. The Delphi murders have gained national attention. The judge did rule that the jury pool will be selected in a different area. And President Biden has welcomed Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida to the White House. The two leaders are discussing increased security cooperation about provocative military actions by China and North Korea. They're also expected to seal an agreement on space projects, ranging from research to landing the first woman and person of color on the moon. Kelly, back to you. I'll see you soon. Thank you, Tyler. Coming up, if it's Friday, it's three buys and a bail. And today we're tracking stocks with activist involvement. Three to buy and one to avoid in a very special edition next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Disney are lower and the worst performer in the Dow t- today, or at least right now. But they're still up more than 5% this week after Nelson Peltz's try-in revealed they own 9 million shares. They're pushing for a seat on the board, claiming in the proxy statement the media giant has, quote, lost its way. Pelt's also taking issue with Disney's acquisition of Fox three years ago. So on the heels of that, today we bring you three buys into bail activist investor edition. Which to buy, which to avoid. Joining us now is CNBC contributor Ken Squire. He is founder and president of 13D Monitor. Ken, I'm so excited for this, I can't even tell you. You know, it's Thanks a, for having me, Kelly. In a market where no one knows what to do with equities, this is a great different way to think about opportunity in stocks, just like the hedge fund chat we were just having. So let's start with your bail. We're going to reverse the order here a little bit. And your bail, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, is Disney. Why? Why wouldn't you want to jump in this alongside Nelson Peltz? 
Well, my, it, yeah, it's not because I don't think Disney's a great company. It's not because I don't think Bob Iger is a, CEO, a great CEO. And it's not because I don't believe Nelson Peltz can create tremendous value there as a director. It's because the company is about to embark on a costly and disruptive proxy fight. And there's just no reason to own the stock during that period. After the fight is over, I'd be, I would certainly re-explore it. And I think if Nelson does get on the board, it would definitely be a buy at that point. All right. So if he does succeed, then you would jump in alongside. And yes. I, by the way, I'm sure plenty of people agree with you uh, about that approach. So let's shift gears then to three buys that you do have in the universe of companies you track with activist involvement. Fresh Pet. We don't talk about that one a lot. Jana's got a 9% stake. They've told Fresh Pet they plan to push for board seats this year. The shares are up 5% in the past three months. Not huge. And they are still down more than 30% in the past year. Why is this a buy for you? Well, first off, it's a great product in an attractive market. This is, if you're not familiar with the company, it's a refrigerated pet food company that sells premium dog, dog primarily dog food. But they, they have refrigerators in the pet aisles of retailers like Walmart and Kroger and Target and the PetFresh actually buys, maintains, and stocks these refrigerators at no cost to the retailer. So the companies love it because they're able to generate revenue without using any of their existing shelf space. And it's a great moat for Fresh Pet that it makes their, their, their peers very difficult to compete with. Okay, so Fresh Pet, a buy for you. Your next one is Crown Holdings. And again, this is why I love this. These are not names we talk about every day. But Carl Icahn has two board seats. It's a beverage and packaging company. He did this just last month, by the way, an 8% stake in the company. Says shares are undervalued. You agree? Uh, yes, I do agree. And and it's not just Carl Icahn in this. It's Impact of Capital. Um, the two are not a group, but they they, they are like-minded. Um, they both want the company to sell the non-core businesses Buyback shares and focus purely on the on the beverage business, which has secular tailwinds. Seventy five percent of new products uh, that go into can, go into cans today versus thirty percent in two thousand and fourteen. What is? I mean, I, I don't know if he expounded on this, but is the macro environment creating an opportunity here as well? We've had so many different supply chain and inflation issues in the pipeline. I don't know if that's wreaked havoc on the stock. Well, well, it, it's affected the stock. In, you know, during COVID. Uh, there's a lot of cans. People weren't going to restaurants. They were buying a lot of cans for their house. And so that's, you know, they're, 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 they're dealing with that now uh, coming out of COVID. And, you know, inflation is hurting it as well. But th there's just a secular, a secular tailwind to, to the move from plastics to, to, uh, to um, aluminum, which is the most, the most recyclable uh, material out there. Sure. So Fresh Pet, Crown Holdings, your third buy is Dollar Tree. They expanded their own board last year after an agreement with the activist investor Mantle Ridge. We all remember that one. They're the third largest shareholder. They added a slate of executives, including a former Dollar General CEO as chairman. Unlike these other names, Dollar Tree is actually up 10 percent or so in the past year. But you think it still has room to run? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 it's just starting here. Uh, the plan here is for uh, is for Rick Drawling, as you mentioned, the former CEO of Dollar General, who's been brought on as the executive chairman here, is is to, at the Dollar Tree stores, move from the one dollar price points to higher price points from a dollar twenty five, three dollars, and five dollar price points. It makes no sense to continue one dollar prices that were established in 1986, hmm. um, when 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 there's inflation. But not only that. Having more price points will allow Dollar Tree to offer a more relevant mix of products to its customers. When 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 customers go for back to school, uh, they can buy their pencils at Dollar Tree and they can buy their pencil cases, but then they have to go to Target to buy their backpacks. True. That's not going to 
chase anymore. With Dollar Tree, is just going to be able to merchandise the stores um, in a way where they can also sell the backpacks for $5 as well. For all of these holdings and in general with fights like these, even where you think the investors are going to ch- you know, push for positive change and all the rest of it, what kind of time horizon do you either look for a, a specific time frame, a year or two, five years? Do you just kind of wait for the campaign to come to a conclusion? How should people think about exiting these? That's a good question. Well, the different activist catalysts have different time frames. So let's look at Fresh Pet. This is an, it, there's an operational catalyst there that could play out over years, and Janet can get some board seats and really create value over over the long term. But there's also potential at, at uh, acquisition of Fresh Pet. I mean, this is a this you know pet food and baby is the is the is the most attractive segments of the consumer packaged goods businesses. And it's very hard to grow that organically. So the the activists, you know, they they have fiduciary duties to to maximize shareholder value, and they might uh, go in and 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 sell the company, which might be an easier way to go. True. Something like like Dollar Tree, um, the you know somebody like Mantle Ridge, they're they're unique in that they're not a hedge fund. They 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 have locked up money for many years, and they don't even make a performance fee until they exit, and they make the performance fee on exit. So they they can be in this for a long time, and in fact. Part of their strategy with the family dollar stores will will hurt revenue in the short term, but should should generate long term value in the long term. So uh, they're, they're able to do that in, in with their with their structure. Yeah, great points. No, I love this, Ken. Super fun. And, and your Disney comments make me think that even if Pelt isn't successful, it's almost like the underperformance you warn about would invite some other kind of, of activist involvement. So it, it it could be a long slog there. Uh, three buys and a bail activist in addition. We got to do it again. Thanks a lot, Kelly. Thanks for your time. Ken Squire with 13D Monitor. Coming up, Tesla slashing prices yet again and a big price slash here in the U.S. in particular. As EV competition ramps up, are they grasping at sales straws? We'll explore. And on this big day of bank earnings, you don't want to miss two big interviews ahead on Closing Bell. Wells Fargo CFO and Bank of America's CEO Brian Moynihan. Look forward to that coming up at 3 p.m. Eastern time. The exchange is back here in two. Welcome back. Man, what a story Tesla has been lately. Today's shares are lower, but they were down much worse earlier on, and they're still up about 7% for the week. They've announced some major price cuts here in Europe uh, yet again, here and in Europe, she tried to say. Let's get to Phil Abo. He's got the details and what's behind the move. Phil, on these Model Ys in particular, I mean, these are some big drops. Big drops, Kelly. It's Model 3, Model Y. You're also seeing some price reductions for the Model S and the Model uh, uh, S and X. So here are what the price drops are in dollar terms so that people can get some perspective here. For the Model 3, the standard version is just a cut of $3,000. I say just a cut. That's about a 6% reduction in price. But look at the price reduction for the Model Y. We're talking, what, $13,000, about twenty. 2018, 20%. So there is a substantial cut there. Joe Speck at RBC Capital out with his commentary uh, on the price cuts from Tesla saying it will be interesting to see their competitive response as OEMs appear to face a trade-off between hitting volume aspirations and profitability. That's the main question here. What does this do to the other automakers who are making electric vehicles? Tesla's market share, it has 64% of the U.S. market share. It dominates the market, not only because it has the manufacturing capacity, but because it has the two best-selling models, the 3 and the Y, and those are in demand. Other automakers, not only do they have models that are, there are not a lot of them, but also they're not close to profitability. That's the reason why you see 
auto stocks under pressure. For the traditional automakers, look, GM and Ford, Stellantis, Toyota, they're all going to respond over time, and they have the wherewithal financially that they'll be able to be more competitive with electric vehicles. But does this mean it's going to take a little bit longer? As for the EV startup stocks, they're under more pressure because they're not close to profitability. And the question now, Kelly, is as Tesla lowers its prices, what does that do for other electric vehicles and for those auto, those electric vehicle makers? How much are they going to have to take a further loss because they just don't have the volumes to compete at this point? Yeah, it might be desperate. It might also be savvy if they can elbow out some of the less well-capitalized competition, even Ford and GM tumbling today. Phil, thank you very much. Phil Lebeau with the latest. Still ahead, prices up, wages flat, and one nascent industry already on the brink. We'll tackle three big issues facing big tech next. And check out shares of Carvana, still trading near session lows after briefly being halted for volatility. The shares are down 14%. A lot of these meme names took a big dip in the last 20 minutes or so, perhaps profit-taking after that sharp move higher this week. We'll keep an eye on it. The exchange is back after this quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. We want to round out the week with the top tech stories. We're watching big changes coming to streaming with HBO Max hiking prices for the first time ahead of their eventual merger with Discovery. The New York Times, meanwhile, reporting that Uber drivers are struggling to get by as the company continues to lose money. And more takes on whether ChatGPT is hype or overhyped as its valuations soar. Here to break it all down, Derek Thompson, a staff writer at The Atlantic, and Casey Newton is platformer editor and CNBC contributor. Great to have you guys both here. Derek, we'll start with you because HBO Max is hiking prices. There are reports of YouTube launching these free ads. I don't even understand what fast channels are and how they're different from everything else out there. Maybe you can help uh, demystify this for us. It's kind of like every single entertainment company wants to become the same entertainment company. Like lots <laughs> of people started in advertising or started, I should say, in linear TV, live TV. They want to get into streaming. And now you have companies that started in streaming. They want to add advertising. Like right. they're essentially recreate the cable bundle. That's what Netflix is trying to do with its partnership with Microsoft. So I see the underlying drive of all this being the fact that inflation happened, rates went up, and streaming, which looked like the life raft that everyone was going to sail away on into this bright, beautiful future, turned out to be a money pit. I mean, point, point out, we're looking right now at the screen, point out which company here is doing fantastically. Disney fired its CEO. Netflix is, has its stock in the toilet. Uh, Discover, or excuse me, Warner Brothers Discovery, which mm. owns HBO Max, is really struggling as well. Peacock is losing billions of dollars. Paramount, don't even talk about it. Everyone is struggling in a similar way, and they're all trying to figure out how do we get through this, you know, adding advertising and raising prices for your subscription product. That's a good way to try to get through it. Casey, is Nelson Peltz coming in? here uh, to be the adult in the room or you know he he said on uh, in his interview with David Faber yesterday he thinks streaming isn't that hard and Disney needs to just go ahead and make it more profitable um, what does he see that everyone else is missing you know it, it's really hard for me to say I think that Derek is right people did just get a bit too optimistic about the upside here I mean I still prefer streaming to my old cable bundle which was full of mostly stuff I never wanted to see but there's just no denying that the prices keep creeping up and frankly the quality isn't getting that much better so I can understand why there's a lot of frustration all around yeah well said and uh, I, I can't remember whose tweet it was but they basically this ties together our whole segment uh, today gentlemen I think they said, you know, we've all been sold on a bad bag of goods here. Derek, I always think of you as like the millennial malaise correspondent. And it's like the gig, you know, we, we were supposed to have streaming and the gig economy and all these. Now we have, you know, all these great things that were supposed to help us now look like they're going to be more expensive uh, than the things that they replaced. 
Yeah, I hate to be the millennial chorus, millennial malaise correspondent. So you made me say that really quickly on television. <laughs> Um, you know, you're seeing it obviously in, in the gig economy as well, and the fact that you know Uber drivers are struggling to make money. I see Uber very much, and frankly, to a certain extent, net, uh, streaming as well. This is a macroeconomic story. This is a story about the fact that we're still kind of living in the shadow of the housing crisis. You had the housing crisis. You had a huge recession. You had the Fed bring interest rates down to zero. You had ZERP, zero rate interest policy, for a decade plus. And it created a really weird economy. It created a lot of illusions about what was going to be the future of tech. And a lot of people got into things like crypto or like streaming, not that I'm comparing the utility right. there, but they got into certain categories and products they thought would be super profitable and ended up not being particularly profitable before rates went up. So I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing Uber struggle as well. They're having to raise prices just like HBO Max, except the prices here are the wages for their drivers to get out of their stock market doldrums. And and Casey, and we talked with a, a stock picker earlier this week who's bearish on DoorDash because he thinks the same problem. The business model doesn't make sense. And if they keep raising prices, they're going to alienate consumers. Where does this leave us? Because, you know, unfortunately, if you're the legacy business that got disrupted, you you went away. I mean, this destroyed people's livelihoods. And I appreciate a lot of the improvements it, it brings in. But if it's not sustainable, especially in a higher rate environment, well, then what? You know, I'm still a little bit on the fence over whether these businesses are truly unsustainable. You read that New York Times story about Uber driver. A lot of these people are pulling in between 60 and 100K a year, right? Wow. These are not terrible jobs. You know, it's definitely the case that we're seeing some fluctuations in demand. And of course, nobody wants to pay more for an Uber ride, but there's a real business there. DoorDash is the same thing, right? People have gotten used to ordering food to their doors and they're not going to be content with pizza and Chinese food. So I'm still confident that at the end of the day, these businesses are going to be around. Around, but we're going to have to keep playing around with these business models and also just probably get used to higher prices. All right. Maybe now we can move on to chat GPT, which I don't think is overhyped. I think it's underhyped, actually. Uh, Derek, what you tell me, again, the, the profit here. What I, I think this one, this is this is so big, we can't even wrap our heads around how big it is. If anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, go to one of these platforms and go to Playground, whatever, chat GPT itself. Type in, you know, um, write a, a TV intro and make it rhyme and just, you know, watch what it comes back with. Uh, the, we're, we're just at the tip of this here, aren't we? We are at the tip of it. I have no idea what this is going to become. Maybe, maybe Casey has a clearer sense, but like, I would almost analogize it to like, if you see something that looks like a tadpole, like that's like, you know, three weeks old, you don't know if that's going to grow into a frog or a human being or an elephant, right? Like, <laughs> That's, I don't know if this is going to become an incredible toy for writers, if GPT-4 and GPT-5 are just going to be the next iteration of the technology that people can play with online right now, or whether we're at the dawn of something that's like artificial general intelligence, which is frankly a concept that I can't even begin to wrap my brain around. Mm -hmm. I would just say in terms of you know GPT being a bubble, um, I kind of see it as the opposite of crypto. Crypto to me was money without utility. It's a technology that's still looking for a use case. GPT oh. right now is kind of like utility without the money. I know how I want to use ChatGPT. I just don't know exactly what the business model is going to be. That's I know good. Microsoft is investing in it right now, but I don't know how it's going to integrate with the rest of the economy. I just know that this thing is is larval and full of potential. No, it's, it's a great way to put it. We know when we're playing around with it that at some point you hit a monthly limit or a weekly limit on how much you can use it. And its creators have said the the computing requirements of this are so massive, they're going to basically have to charge for it in one way or the other. Um, 
Casey, it's also interesting to just go back and think about, I forgot what question I was going to ask you actually about ChatGPT because I was just so busy getting my mind blown about what, what Derek had to say about it. Um, I suppose it was actually going to make the following comment, which is, ChatGPT, could you please go public or open AI as soon as possible? You know, don't wait till you're $100 billion value. You want to guarantee you have a bad IPO that everyone's mad at you about? Wait till you're worth $100 billion and don't let any of the general public in on it. Like, I would love to see them go, you know what? If we can fundraise in this environment, let's just do this IPO right now and let everyone get a piece. Wow. Well, you know, I think they're going to be more patient than that. They've got a really great deal with Microsoft right now, which is paying a lot of those uh, really expensive server bills. And, you know, to an earlier point that we just made, we don't really know what the ultimate business model is here. Of course, one simple idea is just to charge people for using it. And so many people have found it useful for so many things. I think that that could be a perfectly viable model. But look, we also know that this thing is probably going to be able to replace at least some sort of internet search and think about what a valuable business Google is, right? So we're in the very earliest days of this, but you know, unlike Uber or DoorDash, I think there's a lot of ways to get to uh, 100, 200, $300 billion here. All right, and uh, Derek, I think the final word on this has to be actually, if you look through, if you disaggregate the wage data, younger Americans' wages, um, work, uh, employment opportunities, I mean, things have actually been looking so good for millennials lately. They cannot complain if DoorDash costs a little bit more, Okay. <laughs> I, I won't use this moment to lodge that particular complaint. It, it look it's, or streaming. It's, they can't the complain. Wages, they can't the complain about up. streaming. Uh, yeah, I, I'm. I'm not going to serve as the millennial complaint department right now. I, I would simply say, right, we're, we're living in, in a strange moment. I think where you 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 have this potential recession coming. We don't know exactly when the Fed's going to stop uh, hiking. We know that you know core inflation is still high, even though it seems to be coming down. It's it's a weird weird larval moment, I guess you could say, for the economy as well. But maybe I'll register further complaints on behalf of the millennial generation next time. Very good, show. very good, guys. Thank you both. Really appreciate it today. Derek Thompson, Casey Newton, and our big tech rundown today. We call it Big Tech Big Problems, which is also very apropos. Coming up on Power Lunch, while we here in the New York area are, well, should we go here yet or should we talk to Dom Chu? Let's go to Dom Chu. Uh, Mr. Chu, speaking of tech, let's get a check on how some of those stocks are performing. What do you see? Big tech, big problems last year, right? Well, this year it's a little bit of a different story. And the reason why we're going to show you this is because Right now, stocks are at session highs, as you've pointed out. The S&P 500 is up roughly four points. It's one-tenth of 1% gains here. It's nothing really to write home about, except we were down 36 points at one point for the S&P, and the NASDAQ is up about one-third of 1% as well. Now, if you take a look at some of the stocks that have been driving it, it has been the big tech, big problems trade of last year that has been rebounding a bit so far this year. So we'll send those things back over to you guys, and I'll get back to you guys next hour. Dom, thank you very much. Dominic Chu. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.